In the Basque country of northern Spain, the Mondragon Corporation, the world's largest cooperative business enterprise, has found ways to weather economic crises, avoid severe income inequality, and build long-term worker loyalty. Why don't more businesses follow the Mondragon model? Craftsmanship Quarterly presents Could Co-ops Solve Income Inequality? by Roberto Lovato. I'm driving on a circuitous, narrow country road that leads to Are Chabaleta, one of many medieval Basque towns in the storied Lenice Valley. Up above, mist-sodden forests and dreamy trails thread through cloud-capped limestone mountains, the rocky backdrop to towns teeming with legends, and a sequence of economic crises, ancient and modern. The Basque landscape is so breathtaking that several Game of Thrones episodes were filmed here. My reason for visiting is a little different, however. I've come to see whether the region's most modern economic legend, the Mondragon Corporation, is all it's cracked up to be. Mondragon's nearly 81,000 workers are spread across 143 businesses, operating 77 production plants in 22 countries, which makes it the most successful experiment in worker ownership in history. Just the idea that I will soon visit this enterprise has the 20-something former co-op coordinator in me pressing the gas pedal to get there sooner. Though renowned in the growing world of alternative economies, the Mondragon experiment is still little known outside of Spain. Yet, its accomplishments are undeniable. Eight educational institutions, an insurance company, several high-tech firms, electronic car part manufacturers, consulting firms, and major retailers, including Eroski, the supermarket chain whose 33,000-plus workers and over 1,600 outlets make it one of the global powers of retailing. Laboral Cucha, the Mondragon Corporation's financial arm, is one of the largest savings banks in Spain. It, too, gets high ratings, consistently ranking as one of Spain's safest, best-run financial institutions. While these achievements are impressive, I'm here to see much more. After two years as a co-op manager, I'd gone on to earn an MBA and then work as a business consultant. And now, I want to understand how the famed Mondragon model dealt with the inevitable economic crises that all economies and businesses face. Beyond that, I want to figure out if and how a business model of this kind can solve some of the long-standing economic problems that plague the U.S., especially the ever-expanding crisis of income inequality. Several minutes later, I've reached my destination, a 14th-century formerly fortified castle called Otalora, which has become a crucial part of the Mondragon complex. Now owned by Laboral Cucha, the castle has been transformed into a training center for Mondragon's worker owners and their guests. Greeting me as I approach the castle is Ander Echeverria, Mondragon's gregarious, mustachioed director of dissemination, the person charged with promoting cooperativism worldwide. Echeverria's job has been made easier by articles like the recent story in a Harvard Business Review titled, Why the U.S. Needs More Worker-Owned Companies. 
Several studies, including an unprecedented 2005 National Bureau of Economic Research survey of 40,000 workers, have concluded that workers belonging to cooperatives, employee stock ownership plans (ESOPs), and group-based pay schemes identify more strongly with the business than those in more traditional workplaces, and as a result, work harder. Co-ops tend to be better at helping people get through economic crisis, says Roy Messing, director of Kent State Cooperative Development Center, a department started with a rural cooperative development grant from the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Banding together using collective capabilities makes it a lot easier than slugging it out on your own. But that just scratches the surface of what co-ops deliver in both opportunities and challenges. As an example, one of the biggest pluses to working in a co-op, which is by definition owned by the workers, is that every employee is entitled to his or her say. But having a say also leads to responsibilities. Meetings, therefore, are constant, frequently stretching far past the workday. Co-ops also tend to have an uphill battle as they seek to grow and attract financing, primarily because the economic system has long been structured to work with more traditional capitalist enterprises. But for the growing number of workers willing to put in an extra effort that the cooperative challenge demands, the rewards I soon learned can be remarkable. The price of responsibility. A few minutes after we settle into one of the cozy cobblestone rooms of the castle, Echeverria leads a geographically diverse delegation from the U.S. in a seminar on cooperative basics. One delegate mentions that Mondragon and cooperatives in general are being seriously considered as an alternative business model in the U.S. One of the reasons, apparently, is that the co-op structure offers a way to save a number of family businesses, which are run by baby boomers and are on the brink of closure. In November 2018, Market Watch reported that a third of the nation's baby boomers who run their own businesses are planning to retire in the next five years, and more than a third have no children interested or available to take the reins or any other plan for keeping the business open. This looming crisis led, in August 2018, to the creation, in a bipartisan vote, of the Main Street Employee Ownership Act, which enables the Small Business Administration to provide technical assistance and loans for employee ownership conversions. For this to work, of course, the employees need to learn how to run their businesses, some of which are multi-billion-dollar global enterprises. That's why Mondragon puts extraordinary amounts of time and resources into worker training, which it considers the sine qua non of co-op success. The company also wants workers to appreciate the struggle and sacrifice that created their opportunities. That painful history, which spawned the culture of selflessness that is Mondragon's foundation, permeates the atmosphere throughout this castle. The co-op priest. I leave the seminar to check out the museum upstairs. In a small, dark room packed with pictures, a library, and other documents, I notice a yellow document that is the most banal of bureaucratic texts—a list. I assume it's an old factory order, but on closer inspection, I discover that it's one of the many lists which, according to historical texts, contains 1,788 names. 
These were the Basque men and women arrested and jailed in the notorious La Renaga prison by the nationalist forces of General Francisco Franco, Spain's eventual dictator. On this particular document, which was an executioner's list, most of those listed were either shot or placed by the Nationalist Army in a garroteville, a medieval device used to torture and then strangle its victims with rope, chain, wire, or fishing line. Whether by the hand of God or by the equally invisible hand of the market, one of the people on this list who was not executed was Father José María Arizmendi Arieta, Mondragón's founder, and in 2015, a man declared venerable by Pope Francis, a major step toward Arizmendi Arieta's nomination to Catholic sainthood as the Apostle of Cooperation. In several pictures, Arizmendi Arieta is wearing a Saturno felt clergy hat that, along with his chiseled, gaunt face and thin frame, make him look like a bespectacled, clean-cut Basque version of Picasso's iconic black-on-white drawing of Don Quixote. I spot old black-and-white stills of Arizmendi Arieta's fellow priests from the town of Vitoria, who taught him about the church's mission, the redemption of the workers' world. Next to these are pictures of rickety houses, skinny children, and lots of sad faces, signs of the dark times descending on Basque country and all of Spain in the 1920s and 1930s. In the face of this struggle, Arizmendi Arieta joined the Republican Army in 1936 to fight the nationalist forces, who eventually captured and jailed the young priest. Even though he was accused of rebellion and his comrades executed, Arizmendi Arieta was sentenced to a month of imprisonment, but was ultimately absolved. He was then forced into the army and sent to Burgos. While it's tempting to ascribe some moral reasoning to his liberation, it was probably the result of bad business practices. The fascistas lacked the documentation to prove that Arizmendi Arieta received payment from the subversive papers he wrote for. So, he simply returned to his church, which had become one of the few institutions able to provide cover from the encroaching tyranny. Once freed, Arizmendi Arieta focused his ministry on aiding workers' organizations in Basque country, most of which were forced to go underground. Strikes and collective bargaining were outlawed. Workers and their communities were regularly harassed, surveilled, and jailed. Those who labored in the region were forced to work 12-hour workdays for below-survival income, while others suffered from the era's high unemployment, overcrowded housing, and extraordinarily high rates of tuberculosis. Education Especially important to the rise of Mondragon was the lack of social mobility in the early days of the Franco regime, a fact that became obvious to any worker who aspired to get an education. There was one custom in particular that the museum's curators made sure the locals and other visitors could never forget. During the early 20th century and much of the following decades of the Franco era, businesses in Basque country excluded anyone but the children, specifically the sons of business managers, from getting an education. 
Black and white photos from the early 1950s depict Arizmendi Arrieta and some of the uniformed students of the Escuela Profesional, a technical school he founded, laboring at lathes, drills, gear shapers, and other industrial equipment housed at Union Serrajera, then a hotbed of organizing by socialists and a loose rebellious crowd called anarcho-syndicalists. Inspired by their priestly mentor, in early 1954, student workers at the Union climbed the concrete stairs of the hulking, massive structure that housed one of the most important metal factories in all of Spain. The young workers wanted management to consider a radical idea, give employees the option of investing in and owning part of the company. After their proposal was rejected out of hand, five of the students pictured in several large museum photos decided the time had come to take matters into their own hands. On November 12, 1956, they officially established Talleres Ugor, the first industrial cooperative of what would become the Mondragon Corporation. Ugor started off manufacturing heaters and gas stoves, but soon moved into other appliances and, eventually, a name change, Fagor Electrodomesticos. The company served as Mondragon's flagship venture until the global recession of 2008, when it faced a major crisis. More on this in a moment. In the intervening years, Mondragon launched additional cooperative ventures that emulated and expanded on the Fagor example, creating an industrial complex that, by the mid-1960s, included cooperatives in agriculture ventures, education, culture, real estate, and health services. In 1959, the cooperation founded the Caja Laboral Popular, now Laboral Cucha, a cooperative savings bank and credit union that arose out of Avizmendi Arrieta's fear that traditional financial institutions of the Franco era would not lend money to worker cooperatives. Sure enough, Francoist financial institutions refused to lend to Mondragon and its members for many years, a reality that eventually changed with the times and the fall of the Franco regime on November 20, 1975. By this time, the Cooperavistas had developed a powerful set of educational institutions to supplement the work of individual cooperatives and to foster the interdependence between them. Today, these institutions include a culinary arts center and university, 15 technology centers, and Europe's largest research and development complex, according to the Praxis Peace Institute. Fighting Income Inequality the university and all of Mondragon's cooperatives also deal directly with one of today's major sources of Spanish and global inequality, the pay gap between the executives and the average workers. According to the Financial Times Stock Exchange Index, the average CEO salary among European companies is $7 million a year. While the average is admittedly bloated by the continent's big revenue firms, it still yields a CEO-to-line worker pay ratio of 129 to 1. Among traditional companies in Spain, the average is roughly the same. In contrast, Mondragon's cooperatives have decided on a ratio that runs from 6 to 1 to 9 to 1. And no CEO of Mondragon Cooperative makes more than $1 million a year. By contrast, in the U.S., 
The CEO to worker pay ratio averages 339 to 1, with the upper end of the spectrum surpassing a ratio of 5,000 to 1. These figures turned up in a comprehensive May 2018 congressional study conducted by the office of former Congressman Keith Ellison. Curiously, according to a 2016 Stanford University survey, most U.S. workers think a fair executive-to-worker pay ratio would be considerably smaller at a stunning 6 to 1. No wonder income inequality resonates so strongly among American voters whenever the issue is raised. As most everyone knows, the standard explanation for high executive salaries is that companies cannot attract top talent without them. But this might be more myth than fact. Numerous studies show that, on average, the highest paid CEOs tend to be the worst performers. One joint study by the University of Utah and Cambridge University came to the following conclusion. Overconfident CEOs receiving high excess pay undertake activities such as overinvestment and value-destroying mergers and acquisitions that lead to shareholder wealth losses. Of course, a company can always minimize salary discrepancy simply by paying lower-rung workers more generously. And it seems like Mondragon follows this policy, at least in some cases, but the data is far from consistent. For example, in a 2015 interview, Josu Ugarte, Mondragon's chief executive, stated that the lowest level worker at Mondragon gets an annual salary of 28,000 euros or $32,000, which is three times Spain's minimum wage. But according to the comparative job site Indeed.com, a grocery stocker at Roski, Mondragon's giant supermarket, earns the equivalent of $12,860 a year, about the same as grocery stockers in Spain generally. In yet another calculation, a 2012 study by Hamilton University found that the Basque region's cooperatives tend to set a lower wage than conventional firms. Grace Under Pressure In 2008, recession hit Spain as hard as any place else. At the time, Spain was in the midst of a housing bubble which promptly exploded. That sent the country into an economic tailspin that led to unemployment levels of more than 25%. Yet, in Alto Deba, the county where Mondragon and many of its cooperatives are headquartered, unemployment dropped to only about 10% almost a third of the national average between 2009 and 2010. Meanwhile, in the U.S., 66% of companies with employee stock ownership plans either grew or remained stable during the crash of 2009, according to a comprehensive study by the National Center for Employee Stock Ownership. Other research on co-ops seems to back this up. Several studies comparing performance between cooperatives and more traditionally run businesses find that co-ops fare better in times of crisis. One 2017 study from Rutgers University's School of Management and Labor Relations found that traditional businesses converted to worker and employee ownership models increased profits by up to 14%. Unlike workers in traditional firms, Mondragon's worker owners have two critical rights that make for a different workplace, equity and the right to have a say in the hiring and firing of their CEOs. While the management team skews male, men and women at Mondragon are paid the same amount for the same work, which is not the case almost anywhere else, including the U.S., 
It also helps that all employees eat lunch in the same staff lunch area. This includes the CEOs, whose votes have the same power in Mondragon's General Assembly as the janitor sitting across from them. At the end of the year, Mondragon's worker owners collectively create a balance sheet for the coming year. That, of course, requires skill, which is why education matters so much in a co-op. Priority one is reinvesting in the company. 20% of any profits are to be reinvested in an obligatory reserve fund. Another 30% goes into another voluntary reserve. 10% is used for social, educational, and other programs to benefit the cooperative's local community. And the remaining 40% is placed in the co-op equivalent of a pension fund. The self-sacrifice has clearly paid off. When Father Arizmendi Arrieta came to Mondragon, it was the poorest area of Spain. Today, it is the wealthiest, writes Jill Bamberg, co-founder of the Bainbridge Institute, who visited the enterprise in 2017. And the majority of the community's residents are worker owners at Mondragon. In times of crisis, workers in Mondragon's co-ops have even slashed their wages instead of laying off workers. The most difficult recent decision we had to take was the closure of Fagor, says Maria Retegi, the 46-year-old customer service manager at Orbia, a bicycle manufacturing operation in Mayabia that is one of Mondragon's most successful co-ops. Retegi, who is the daughter of the former rector of the university, who worked with Arizmendi Arieta, remembers the chaos of that period acutely. The Rise and Fall of a Co-op in 2013, the fall of Fagor Electrodomesticos Cooperative, once Spain's largest electrical appliance manufacturer and one of the first cooperatives in the corporation, turned into a referendum on the Mondragon model and global cooperativism in general. It should be noted that two other Fagor ventures have survived just fine. The Fagor story in this account, therefore, only refers to Fagor Electrodomesticos. The media in Spain and elsewhere followed The Economist in declaring that one of the Mondragon Group's key principles of solidarity among its 110 constituent co-ops has found its limit. The reality, of course, was more complicated. Fagor's difficulties started with the 2008 crash, which combined with intense competition from Chinese appliances flooding the European market. That created a threat not just to Fagor, but all of Mondragon. At first, Retegi explains, we tried to support Fagor in managing their way out of the crisis. This initial internal line of defense led Fagor workers to vote to slash their wages by 20%. Unfortunately, Fagor's internal firewall fell. Acting swiftly, Retegi and the 649 other members of Mondragon's Cooperative Congress, one of the corporation's primary decision-making bodies, met in May 2013, where they approved the establishment of the Fondo de Reestructuración y Empleo Societario, or the Fund for Restructuring and Company Employment. Together, the corporation's 103 cooperatives donated more than 70 million euro or 90 million dollars into a self-imposed bailout fund to help restructure Fagor. But that didn't stop the bleeding. A few months later, Fagor's debt reached 850 million euro or 1.2 billion dollars. In total, Mondragon pumped 300 million euro into the failing company.
Eventually, the organization's cooperative spirit was forced to deploy another instrument in its toolbox, making a difficult decision in the interests of the whole. In November 2013, the General Assembly voted to reject the Fagor workers' request for another 170 million euro bailout. The market perception was that Fagor was going to drag all the other cooperatives down with it. Choman Garcia, the CEO of Laboral Cucha, Mondragon's financial arm, told El País, Spain's largest daily. But what the market didn't know was that we had designed firewalls to prevent contagion. In November 2013, the General Council voted, with the support of Mondragon's cooperatives and their members, to let its flagship sink into bankruptcy, so the rest of the multi-billion dollar enterprise could be saved. To do this, Rategi and the other cooperativistas provided the Fagor workers a battery of social and other services. During the next few years, Mondragon found jobs for laid-off workers at its other cooperatives. Today, only about a hundred of Fagor's 1,800 employees still have no work. Can a co-op work in Cleveland? Back at the Otavara Castle Seminar, a U.S. delegate raises his hand. This model works well in the context of Basque country, says Ronnie Galvin, who works with the delegation sponsor, the Democracy Collaborative. But aren't there other pressures when the model works with people from other parts of the world? Other delegates echo Galvin's worry, wondering how co-ops can work in cities like Detroit or rural towns in Ohio. Eche Berria responds, No, the model cannot be applied automatically as it is. It has to be adjusted to the local conditions. There is no other way. So what adjustments are needed in a place like East Cleveland, which has been struggling with social unrest and economic decline for decades? To answer that question... I travel to Ohio. The August air in East Cleveland has a humidity that feels like Latin America, as does the gloomy panorama around me. Dozens of hulking, windowless, abandoned, multi-story apartment buildings along concrete canyons that look like the Civil War-era pictures of Guernica I saw during a visit to that city's museum. In contrast to Spain, however, only one bomb dropped in East Cleveland— the bomb of foreclosures that forced 10,000 Clevelanders to abandon their homes and apartments in just one year, 2011. East Cleveland and other predominantly working-class black neighborhoods like Huff and Glenville that saw major riots in the late 60s were hit especially hard. Despite the current low unemployment rate on a national scale, Communities like these have not recovered from those upheavals or from the more recent recession of 2008. A short drive northwest of here is the brightly lit offices of Glenville's Evergreen Laundry on 105th Street. Established in 2007 and partially based on the Mondragon model, the laundry forms, along with Green City Growers and Evergreen Energy Solutions, part of Evergreen Cooperatives, at the invitation of the Democracy Collaborative, the Cleveland Foundation, and other foundational institutions, members of the Mondragon Corporation visited Cleveland to provide advice and technical assistance during the foundation of the Laundry Co-op. Evergreen Vice President Brett Jones and others from his team have also traveled to Basque Country. In fact, they were part of the recent U.S. delegation. 
To help launch Evergreen, a collection of anchor institutions, big hospitals, universities, and other major facilities agreed to let the co-op bid for contracts. The role of these anchor institutions has caused some to criticize the Cleveland model for being less organic than other co-ops that begin and end with worker owners. Local investment tips the balance. It's late afternoon, the time when workers at more traditional businesses are going home. The men and women of Evergreen, however, are just starting a business meeting in a cramped, windowless room. We're about to triple our growth, says Claudia Oates, a woman in her 50s who is leading the meeting of about 20 of the Laundry Co-op's 200 members. The excitement fueling the meeting stems from Evergreen's recent winning bid for a contract to manage the Cleveland Clinic's laundry facility, which was run until last February by the massive French company Sodexo Corporation. Judging from anecdotal reports, the price of the two companies' bids were comparable. As a result, it was the social benefit, the multiplier effect, that made the difference. Profits in Evergreen will now stay in Cleveland, especially East Cleveland, where most of its worker owners hail from, including its vice president, Brett Jones. Community wealth building was the tiebreaker, says Jones. The fundamental difference between the two bids is that the democratic workplace increases the quality of the jobs and creates wealth building opportunities via profit sharing. Our workers are paid a living wage, $12 an hour, which is not always the case in non-employee-owned companies, and the upside is the profit sharing. We layer in additional benefits like a home ownership program and retirement account contributions. Today, a hundred former Sodexo workers are in the process of learning the skills and responsibilities involved in being a worker owner. The Co-Ops of Tomorrow The training challenge in Cleveland, however, is very different from how it plays out in Mondragon. More than half of the laundry's members are what Coates calls re-entry, formerly incarcerated people who need a second chance, good people who made bad decisions. For these people, a chance to own a piece of the company you work for is a huge opportunity, and that can make the hassle of working for a co-op entirely worthwhile. We go the extra mile, says Coates, not just because it's our job, but because we benefit our families and communities, and because we are also the owners. From all indications, it seems that Evergreen's tweak of the Mondragon model has worked. For the laundry business in particular, Roy Messing of Kent State's Cooperative Development Center said, Evergreen has turned the corner. In Cleveland and at Montaragon, it's clear that cooperative success hinges on the massive amounts of extra time and energy co-ops require from their worker to attend extra meetings, education seminars, and other responsibilities that go far and beyond the day-to-day -day requirements of their specific jobs. Without this extra time and energy, research and my own experience suggest cooperatives will not reach the ideals of equitable pay, workplace democracy, and other values associated with cooperativism. And even with all the time, education, and effort, there's no guarantee that a co-op will function effectively forever, as the Fagor case illustrates. Despite the criticisms, contradictions, and challenges they face, 
Cooperatives continue to grow vigorously and inspire millions around a world still reeling from the ups and downs of the global economy. As a result, many in the U.S. are discovering that co-ops are not so foreign as they might initially seem. Household brands like Ace Hardware, The Associated Press, Ocean Spray, Sunkist, True Value, and Welch's function as cooperatives or adopt some aspect of cooperative work. Millions of people are members of credit unions, which operate cooperatively. For others, including the U.S. government, cooperative structures represent the future, an opportunity to face the coming silver tsunami of baby boomer businesses that will close unless an alternative is found. Estimates vary wildly on how many people work in co-ops, perhaps because people differ on how a co-op is defined. A 2014 report for the UN, for example, puts the figure worldwide at 12.6 million. However, the Harvard Business Review counts more than 17 million, or 12% of the U.S. workforce, who are employed in employee stock ownership plans, credit unions, consumer and purchasing cooperatives, and other worker-owned enterprises. Whatever the figure, nowhere is the cooperative advantage as obvious as in the struggle to close today's gargantuan, ever-widening income gap, both in the U.S. and across the world. Defeating the dragon of income inequality may, in fact, be one of the most appealing social benefits of the continued interest in cooperativism, a point made clear to me back in the misty mountain motherland of the Otalora Castle, where I ask Echeverria the origin of the name Mondragon. Apparently, the original Basque name for this part of Spain was Arasate, for mountain pass, but the Spanish named it Mondragon, meaning Mountain of the Dragon. And why? Legend has it, he says, that the name comes from a time when the locals joined together to defeat a large dragon, he tells me with a mischievous smile. A clear sign that cooperation defeats individualism. Could Co-ops Solve Income Inequality was written by Roberta Lovato. It was read by Garen Norquist and produced by me, Chris Igusa. This story originally appeared in Craftsmanship Quarterly, a multimedia online magazine about artisans, innovators, and the architecture of excellence. More stories, videos, audio recordings, and resources on craftsmanship can be found at craftsmanship.net. Craftsmanship.net